and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. Um, my good friend Jace Hunt is on screen, though it's looking a bit dim in your room, Jace. Are you conserving energy? Is this, <laughs> is this to keep your bills down? <laughs> no, it's because I've got those stupid, trendy, useless light bulbs. You know, the ones that look like vintage, but they're not really. Ah, yes. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. With the, with the, with the thing yeah, in the them. Filament, the, the filament. Yeah, the filament thing in them. Filament yeah. thingy in them, and uh, yes, they don't chuck out any light whatsoever. They're a bit shit, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they that's... look good. Yeah, that's you all over, isn't it? <laughs> a bit shit, but looks good. I'll well, take just that. just a just a little bit shallow. <laughs> all about all about the exterior. <laughs> Absolutely. Ah, excellent. I think it's going to be a good night tonight. Um, we've got Mike Long with us, and Mike Long is known to uh, us at the Guitar Show uh, because he's the owner of ATB Guitars. But we've just been touching on the fact he's got a fantastic backstory as well, which I'm sure we're going to delve into, particularly, and I'm going to drop it in early because it potentially involves Marillion. Uh, Mike, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ant. Yes, brilliant. Uh, and we've we've known each other, well, what, Getting on five minutes now, haven't we? Indeed, we have. Yes, <laughs> and yes. already formed a, a common kind of bond. It's already felt like five years. Yes. <laughs> oh, bless you for that. Bless you for that. You're very, very kind. Um, before we start, are you having a good day? Yes, not bad. Thank you very much. Yeah. What, mm-hmm. what, what's a What's a typical Mike Long day look like? Oh gosh. Uh, well, I like I like to go and work early. Um, I'm quite an early riser. I, I drive into work, which which should take me ten minutes because because of the traffic works takes me about thirty five minutes in Cheltenham. And um, I, I I I have a cup of coffee, uh, surrounded by over a hundred valuable vintage guitars. Like, uh, sit on the sofa and stare at them and wondering what the hell I'm doing. But um, then the, the my staff sort of gradually come in about nine o'clock and um, we sort of plan the day. And uh, I've got uh, David who does, uh, he's general manager. He, he works on the guitars as well in the workshop. Uh, he helps answer some of the queries. Um, David, he does all the content for us, the YouTube videos, he edits those and he does all the social media and he photographs the guitars, helps with the website. And me, I... I Basically, um, I, I go on the hunt. I go on safaris. I look for guitars. I try and find them. When I find them, I will write descriptions for them and uh, sell them, answer inquiries. And uh, hopefully if it leads to a sale, then they'll get shipped off to um, any corner of the world to hopefully happy customers. And yeah. is, that, is that a dark art, what you've just said? You've just, you've just tossed in something there. I go on safari. Mm-hmm. As if it was the most normal thing in the world, but that sounds like a real dark art to me. It, it is in some respects, and it, it is very much like a safari. I think Joe Bonamassa first coined the phrase. Well, that's the first time I'd heard it, but it's very much like a safari. I you you stalk your prey, which can um, I know that evokes very sort of sometimes not very pleasant things, but uh, it, it's really uh, getting a sniff of something, getting a sniff of your prey, be it the vintage guitar, and then finding out a bit more information about it, finding out about who the seller is, where he's located. And then basically, yeah, I guess you have to stalk it. You have to get in touch with the seller. You have to find out what he's got. You have to find out his circumstances, etc. And then you may go on the hunt. You may sort of fly over to somewhere where he's, he's located, have a look at it, uh, do negotiations, hand over the money. And eventually you you come back with it, usually fair, feeling fairly pleased. So, yes, it is like a like like a hunt, like a safari. And your, your trophy at the end of the day is is hopefully a very nice vintage and desirable guitar. Is that the normal kind of places that I would expect you to go hunting? Oh, I, I mean, I, I will go hunting everywhere and anywhere. Right. I have been to loads of places in the world. But um, lately, because of the sad state of the UK pound, it's uh, I've not travelled so much. Um, it's uh, it's it's made it a lot more difficult. So 
it's it's generally centered around the UK at the moment. But yeah, I mean, prior to when before the pan collapsed, I was traveling all over the place to America, Japan, Far East, uh, Australia. Okay, I did. I didn't quite meant. I, I kind of meant a step before that as to where you actually get these leads from. Are you going in the same sort of places we're going? Are you going to eBay? Are you going to places like that? Or are you? Is there a different way of you locating these things? Or the people contact ah, you? I see. No, no, no. We. I don't generally do that these days. No, I ah. used to, but um, it's it's so competitive these days, and it's also uh, it's full of quite dodgy people. So right. no, I, I I tend to. Guitars tend to find me to a certain extent. People tend to contact me. Um, We've sort of built up a reasonable reputation. So if somebody uh, has something to sell, I I usually get to hear of it either through word of mouth, through colleagues or friends, or they all come to me direct. They'll email the company or they'll um, give us a call or whatever. And uh, generally they come over to me. Um, I don't generally chase on eBay or um, or Reverb these days or any of the places like that. Um, I, I find it not as rewarding as it was 10, 10 years ago plus. Hmm. So you had to be early to that platform to really get anything Yes, yes, you did. I mean, I was doing that back in the late 90s when the internet was barely born and eBay UK hardly existed um, in the late 90s. I was going around the country, going around the world, looking for guitars on eBay, finding some cracking deals and going over there, picking them up. But but these days, it's it's a lot more difficult to do that. And uh, it's, it's a lot more dodgy than it was then. Mm. Yeah. No, I can, I can, I can believe that because uh, I mean, I know I'm not a totally different end of the spectrum to what um, you'll be looking at, but I remember, you know, I, I bought a great Squire off eBay, probably, you know, fifteen years ago maybe or whatever it was, um, and you just and it was really nice, and you just don't seem to see anything like that anymore, and it was very cost effective. And it was, you know, I ended up driving an hour to buy something that was like 150 quid and was absolutely great. And yet that just doesn't seem to exist Mm -hmm. uh, really anymore. So I suppose you're just doing the same thing, just at a totally different price point, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) but no, no, the analogy is quite correct. It's it's just so much more difficult than it used to be. So, you know, when you, you go off around the world and let's assume that you've gone to the States in the past and... You're not flying to the well. You might be flying to the states for a single guitar if it's a particularly special one. But I would assume that, you know, if you're going to go to the states, you're probably going to be looking. I don't know, at picking up maybe ten guitars, something like that, if you can, or you could back then before the pan collapsed and everything. Yeah. I, I, what's the logistics of getting them back? I mean, you know, one you can carry onto a plane, maybe two. Mm-hmm. But when you've got ten, how how are you having to? Then go to DHL, you know, UPS or whatever, pallet them up. Is is that it? Or I've never actually done it that way, but I know uh, colleagues of mine in Europe, other dealers do it that mm. way. Um, it's but there's various ways you can do it. If you're if you're carrying, you can carry. I've carried four guitars maximum by myself on the plane. Right. Um, at the time, I was flying business class, so I had extra allowance. Um, and uh, and two of the guitars were sort of like juniors in soft cases, so mm. it wasn't too bad. But I think four is a maximum amount to carry on a plane. Um, but you can easily carry two if you if you travel light. Um, Any more? There's a couple of ways you can do it. There's, uh, you, I mean, depending on your budget. Uh, if your budget is quite um, slim, you can actually go down to the U.S. Post Office. You can package them up. You can go to a guitar store over there. Um, find a friendly guitar store who will give you a box. You can package it up yourself, take it down the US Postal Service. And for what was at the time about $100, you can get it sent to the UK. Um, but uh, this was a long time since I've done mm. this now, so it may well have gone up a lot since then. Uh, you, you can also go DHL, UPS, FedEx, but they're generally very expensive if you're just sending uh, single items. Uh, there's a there's a freight companies DHL being one of them who will come and palletize it for you. 
and send it back on the plane. Um, that That is reasonably cost-effective, so I've heard, but I've never done that myself. Um, what we used to do is we we had a freight forwarder in Texas who, who we'd get the stuff shipped to locally, and when he had enough um, items to make a shipment worthwhile to the UK, then he, he'd send it over on the pallet yeah. in bulk. Yeah, that makes more sense. But if you, if you intend to do it yourself, if it's just one, two, or even three or four, you could go over and just carry them. That would be my advice. Any more than, uh, yeah, look at going down to the post office and send them over. The only thing is you, the post office isn't a fantastic system. It's not uh, as accurate in tracking facilities as somewhere like UPS or FedEx. So oh, I know. I've bought lots of stuff that's come via USPS. Uh, you know, um, yeah. just as we went into lockdown, I'd bought a, um, oh, what was it called? It's a radial tone bone, so I could play both of my amps at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took about six months for a guitar pedal to arrive via USPS. It was ridiculous. It's crazy. So, yeah, you, you bite on a wing and a prayer when you do it. It looked mm-hmm. like that in some ways. I mean, I, I bought a switch knob for a 52 Telecaster Um Two months ago, and that hasn't arrived yet. Wow. I wish you told me, Jace. I think I might have a tone bone here. Oh, well. I've got it now. It doesn't Sorry. matter. <laughs> Didn't crop up in conversation, did it? I'm now no. getting very worried, because you and I are going over to the States together next year, aren't we? We are. And I'm now concerned that you're going to be handing me two guitars as we, as we you know, oh, work our way through LAX. I mean, you know, in Mike's world, it's probably not that cost effective, but going to the Cosa Mesa guitar show when Nam's on is just a dream. I mean, you just see all of these really, really cool vintage guitars, plus a lot of sort of like what I suppose are now vintage 80s guitars sort mm-hmm. of thing. And, and you know, the temptation is to, uh, to purchase one, but... Uh, the last few times we've been, we've had the Cites thing, and it was like, I'm never getting this back with the rosewood board. Um, fortunately, that's gone now. Um, but, yes, the temptation's there. You'll have to come to the Cosa Mesa show if it's on at the next NAMS show. It's brilliant. Oh, it well, will be, yeah. If, an, if a NAMS in January, then the show will be on. No, it's in April. It's in April next year. Oh, mm. oh, okay, yeah. Mm. Yeah, back to January. I think it's back to January, January of the year after, isn't it? Yes, well, I, I believe you're right, yeah. I mean, that ties in probably because Joe Bonamassa, for the last couple of shows that I'd been to, which would now be 2020 and 2019, I think, um, Joe Bonamassa has a stand there with his Nerdville guitars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one year he bought all of his Gibson sort of ESs along and another year he bought all of his Fenders uh, and stuff. And, uh, I mean, you can't buy them off Joe, but he does like to show them off. And that, you know, it was bloody lovely to look at. Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I was there that year as well, actually. Yeah, we had all his um, his surf green fenders. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> all of it, of course, all of my surf green fenders. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose that kind of ties in really, because one of the things I got written down to you was to uh, talk to you about the story of the burst, which got in all of the press this year. I think I put my email to you a 59, but it wasn't a 59, was it? It was a 60. Yes, a very early 60, yeah. So, uh, you know, what happens when someone phones you up and says, I've got this knackered old Les Paul. Do you want to have a look at it? <laughs> I mean, how, how did that go? Well, uh, she she contacted, contacted us by email and said that I've got this guitar, which I need evaluation for, basically, because her dad was moving house. She yeah, He'd given it to her to look after and uh, she needed to increase her household insurance, but she wasn't sure by how much. She said she'd done a Google search on Gibson Les Paul and came up with values of around £5,000. But she said she wanted to take it to someone just to check over, make sure it, it was right, the valuation. So um, I said, yeah, we can do that. I mean, I can probably do it by photographs. So just send me photographs. So she sent some photographs and... They were, they were pretty crap, actually. They were t- <laughs> taken at a really weird angle um, in very poor lights, very blurred, uh, which which you, you think would be almost impossible this day with um, modern 
camera phones, but uh, I don't know what phone she was using, but it was terrible. <laughs> anyway, um, I from the photos, I couldn't really see it clearly at all. Excuse my cat, Aston. <laughs> He always likes to be in the, in the, the picture. Um, I couldn't see um, from the um, pictures exactly what it is. In fact, it looks so bad, such in bad condition. And um, it looked, uh, the fingerboard, for instance, looked white. It is so dried out. It was unrecognisable as uh, as a rosewood. So I, I, I thought originally it may have been... Um, uh, a Dick Knight copy because it looked very, very bad. Mm. And I know Dick Knight did quite a few copies and it sort of looked a bit like that. And so I said, look, to, to be on the safe side, you really need to bring it in here because I can't tell for sure from your photographs exactly what it is. So um, she she made an appointment and about three weeks later, she came in with this brown Lifton case. And I thought, hmm, things are looking a bit interesting now. And um, when I opened up the case, um, things definitely started to look interesting. And I knew pretty much immediately what she had there. But uh, we did our due diligence. We had a good look at it. We had a good look inside. We looked at all the parts and um, we, we took it to bits. And um, at the end of the inspection, I, I, I said to her, look, I've got some good news. I've got some bad news, I'm afraid. Um, the bad news is it's probably one of the worst, filthiest guitars I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it, uh, the bridge has broken off. The pickups don't work. Um, it's, uh, the frets are completely shot. And uh, it's totally unplayable and doesn't even work. Um, but it, the good news is it can be fixed. And when it's fixed, it's probably going to be worth in the region of £175,000. So um, <laughs> that took her a bit by surprise, to say the least. There was uh, a bit of stunned silence. And then she sort of, then she said, oh, I better, better tell my dad, I suppose. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, she, she went away to absorb all that. Um, she contacted her dad. Her dad thought she was pulling her leg, didn't believe her. She thought she was having a laugh. And um, she, she eventually uh, came back and, and said, um, you know, thanks very much for the valuation. Um, uh, what, what do you suggest we do with it? Well, um, I, I suggested that it first of all needs to be put into playable condition. And then secondly, we'd either make an offer to buy it or we'd sell it on consignment. So um, she, took, uh, she took a good while to think about what she wanted to do. And she eventually came back. We, we made an, an agreement to sell it. And, um, and she was very happy. And her, her dad, I mean, we, we got the, uh, you know, pretty much the price we were after. Um, and her dad didn't believe a word of this until the money actually hit his account. He, wow. he still thought right at the moment that his daughter was um, having him on. So that was quite a nice story, actually. I mean, uh, it was a good story because everyone ended up happy, um, which is the way deals should go. Mm. And uh, and it's it's just, it was just so brilliant. You, you never ever get that in this day and age. Obviously, with the um, establishment of the internet and uh, all the all the prolific details there are out there on guitars, uh, to find somebody who really doesn't know have a clue what they have is is very very rare, but she was a teacher from Presbury. Her dad played in a band in Birmingham in the uh, in the sixties. He bought the guitar for fifty quid after seeing Eric Clapton play one at the Marquee. Um, his his band went on to support Cream actually, and then uh, his band got a record deal, and and eventually they um, they gave up. He moved he moved his life on to something different, and the guitar got stuck in the closet in a very dirty closet, maybe in a garage, but the look of it, and just completely forgotten about until it was time for him to move house. Wow. Yeah. If you if you hear of any others like that, then do let me know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So how does Joe Bonamassa get to find out about that? Is that Have you got his number, basically? Uh, yeah, I do have his number, actually, but um, I didn't call him. He contacted us. Uh, he saw a post on Instagram, and uh, he, he got in touch. Pretty much straight away 
he asked for loads and loads of pictures of the guitar, which we sent him. And um, and he said, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. You know, if you can take it to the Albert Hall and play there next week, then um, I'll, I'll have a good look at it. And obviously, you know, you can have a see the concert and have a backstage tour and stuff. So we agreed to do that. And he uh, he saw the guitar. As soon as he opened the case, he couldn't take his eyes off it. I knew it was going to be a difficult sell. <laughs> and uh, he shook my hand within sort of seconds and uh, said, checks in the post. Wow. And uh, yeah, a couple of days later, it arrived. So that was good. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it, it is, you know, I used to, before I did um, music shows, so 25 years ago, I did classic car shows and we just used to call them barn finds. You know, someone had found a, you know, first series Porsche 911 or something in a barn. And it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? They're they're always covered in like chicken poop and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you've got that. I mean, but I mean, how many bursts were made in 1960? Something ridiculous, isn't it? Like 280 of them or something. It's not many, is it? It's not many. It's a bit more than that, but not very many at all, no incredible mm. so, uh, and, and i suppose and that is one of the the one-offs that you probably never expect to get come through the store really isn't it yeah. i don't think that will happen again in my lifetime now <laughs> unfortunately I, w- I wish it was an every every week occurrence but uh, uh sadly it's uh it's not no no what, what generally happens is we have people contact us all the time saying i've got this old guitar this fender guitar which my dad left us, hasn't been used for ages, and they bring it in and it's been refinished. It's had half of its guts replaced with Damasio's. Um, it's got brass pick guards on. Mm. And we have to tell them bad news that it's not worth 30 grand that they thought it would be. So they'll just go on the internet. They'll go on to Reverb and eBay and see these guitars up at these astronomical asking prices and expect that theirs will be the same. So it's it's good to finally actually find somebody and tell them some good news rather than what we normally unfortunately have to do is tell them bad news that their possession isn't worth what they thought it might be so how do you how do you get that you you must have an encyclopedic knowledge of certainly i would imagine fender gibson and probably martin um Fender and Gibson up until about 75, yes. Not, probably not so much Martin. We're not so much of acoustic specialists. But, yeah, yeah, I do. We, we do stock some Martins. I, I'm just kind of interested in um, how you go in your sort of like career tra- trajectory and, and, and how you gain all of this knowledge. Because, I mean, I've been reading guitar magazines, books for no, I've 40 years and I don't know half of this stuff. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, and certainly way back when, there was so little information available because the internet didn't exist and there were so few kind of books and, and stuff. Well, how, how does your journey start on this road? Um, well, I, I started at a very young age. I started when I was at university. I was buying and selling and trading and playing. Uh, on a on a sort of small scale basis, but that's what sort of got me hooked on it. And um, I I sort of I, I worked my way upwards from there really. And um, I've handled thousands and thousands of vintage guitars. And it's all very well um, reading books, but uh, you gain the real experience by handling them, by seeing them, by feeling them, even smelling them. And um, just studying every little detail of each one you get through, really, and making your own notes. Um, it's, I mean, but there's a lot of good resources out there, don't get me wrong, but there's nothing that really beats experience at the end of the day with that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. So you say up to about 1975. Mm-hmm. What What is it for you, and having been to your place and played quite a few of those guitars, what is it that you think makes them so special compared to the sort of like modern day equivalents? It's a, it's a, it's a complete sensorial package, really. Um, when you're sitting down with a vintage guitar and playing it, um, all your senses are activated. It's not just your, it's not just your ears with the way it sounds. It's also the way it feels. It's the way it looks. 
Um, it's a way it smells, as, as I said before. Mm. And uh, it's, it's an overall package which is not really easily quantifiable uh, in, in any sort of um, respects. It's, it's just like a complete package, which you don't get with, with modern guitars at all. Um, most, m- most of the modern guitars, to be honest, leave me quite cold. Um, they, uh, they, they, they lack something which vintage guitars often always, pretty much always do have. And I guess a lot of people would say that's character or soul or whatever, whatever you mm. want to call it. But it's, it's, again, it's something which you can't easily quantify, but it's, it's a feeling you get when you're, when you're holding, playing, listening to a vintage guitar. Uh, when you put that down, you pick up a modern guitar, you're, you're left with a, with a much colder feeling about it. And it just doesn't feel the same at all. Is that to do with the finish or...? Um, it's, it's to do with um, quite a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, the finish certainly does have a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, there's a, even the modern Fender Custom Shop Nitro finishes, they're not the same as a 50-year-old Nitro finish, which has been um, checked and uh, played for 50 years. Uh, finish has got a lot to do with it. Um, the, the, the way the plastics have aged as well, the looks of it are totally different. It's, it's still very, very difficult to get that right, I think. Mm. And you, you, you would only get that right if you actually had a vintage instrument with you because it's very difficult to um, artificially age something correctly, in my opinion. There are pe- people out there who do it well. I mean, Clive Brown, for instance, does a brilliant job um, yeah. on, uh, on aging stuff. Um, but you can still tell that it's a, it's a newer finish which has mm-hmm. been aged rather than an original old, old one. But yeah, it, it, a lot of it is down to the finish. That's that's true. Yeah, um, there's, there's also the materials as well. Um, mm. I mean, there, there is hot debate on on this, but um, they did say that they used uh, better quality materials 50, 60, even up to seventy years ago. And uh, there is a certain element of truth in that. Um, Certainly in terms of when it comes to Fender, the, the bodies in the 50s and 60s, uh, pre-65, were definitely lighter, better selected woods than they were later on, which is why we, we tend to have 75 as our cutoff, because um, after 75, um, things began to go downhill for Fender during the CBS takeover or after the CBS takeover. And for Gibson, it, it happened a little bit earlier in the early 70s when Norlin took over. Well, both these companies were bean counters rather than artisans making guitars, or their primary concern was making a profit rather than making good instruments. And uh, the quality is not so desirable for us and not so desirable for our customers. Do you think it's to do with like uh, consumerism, really? That uh, in the fifties and sixties, they weren't having to log endless rainforests down. Um, so you've got older, slower-grown wood, and are they moving into like forced growth by the mid seventies or something? So we're getting more densely packed, tighter wood. Is that's that's actually a very good point, and yeah, I think you could be right there. Yeah, yeah, we weren't chopping down wood at the rates we were back in the 50s, that's mm. for sure. Yeah, there wasn't so much consumerism, as you rightly point out, but that sort of exploded, didn't it, during the 70s? Mm. And, uh, and yeah, as a result of that, then we were chopping down rainforests um, as if they were going out of fashion. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. That's true. Can I just jump in with something? Um Obviously, you've talked there about your cutoff being seventy-five and and slightly earlier for Gibson. Is there anything that's come after that's that's had a similar sort of um, that's got a similar sort of description to what you you said about the defenders from that particular age? I'm 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 going on with the Squire thing really, actually, and, and going, you know, there's a a lot of people really like those early Squires, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of, uh, to the point where they have become collectible. Um, and um, it, 
do you, you find the same thing with the, you know a guitar that maybe stems from sort of early mid eighties that you can pick it up now and it has still a kind of vintage because it's still thick end of forty years old, or is it is it very much limited to to that that ten fifteen year period you know fifties sixties? Well, um, the, the the problem is that's where our expertise sort of fades away really. Right. Um, I I don't see enough of the eighties guitars to sort of have a sort of valued opinion, I guess, on that. Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a couple here and they've been really nice, actually, it has to be said. But uh, our, our sort of um, sample size is, is really tiny when you compare it to the sort of previous vintage ones. So um, I guess I'm not as qualified to comment on those. Right. <laughs> but based on the, on the two or three we've had here, they're, they're certainly really good guitars, yeah. Because I mean, it was, it was kind of in line with what you were saying before, which was we know certain ranges or certain points in time. There's there's been you know maybe five years or three or four years where where when those Squire guitars came out, they they were incredible value. Mm-hmm. You know, when they came through, they were they were well built, good good component parts. You know, kind of really should probably wouldn't have gone through the modern kind of um, cost benefit or cost sort of uh, process. Uh, essentially they were making a great instrument and then within a couple of years the brand's established and the you know the component parts start to go down because the the brand itself is selling if that makes sense you mm-hmm. know so the first ones are get reputation although squire guitars are great people love them uh and then people start going oh squire fantastic we'll buy squire but at which point you've established the brand and and then and, kind and of the bean counters come in and the bean and counters they're... kick in yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. sure yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it probably repeats itself in history quite a bit, this, this scenario, I would imagine. So, yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, only because I had, an, mm. I had an, an Ibanez, an RG550, which I bought uh, and should never have sold, which probably would have been worth, a, you know, more now than it was when I paid for it. And obviously those those early Ibanezes were very well thought after, far more than the, you know, the ones that came even two or three years later. Mm, sure. um you yeah, know because yeah. again at that point they're established and everybody's suddenly wanting them from actually when they first they first hit indeed yeah mm-hmm. um it obviously there was a quite deafening thud when you dropped joe bonamassa's name in in for the first time <laughs> so following the uh giving you the opportunity to to create similar thuds go on and give us some of the people that you've sold guitars to oh gosh um well, gosh, we've um, a, a lot of them go to a management company, so we don't get to meet them. But I mean, we, we sell guitars to Coldplay, um, Pearl Jam, um, Blur. Um, gosh, um... is there anybody you know who's always on the lookout? Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Paul McCartney's uh, people in his band are contacting us all the time. The stuff um they, they bought quite a bit from us as well um there's um i mean joe's always on the lookout as well he's bought uh, a few items not just the uh not just the burst um uh getty from rush i mean he's uh he he <laughs> he nearly bought two bases but he's he's uh in touch as soon as we have a nice vintage base usually um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of people out there who uh, who, who collect and uh, and obviously play and are, are looking for these things. And uh, yeah, they'll generally go for the, the rarer stuff, which is mm. obviously quite highly, highly priced. But yeah, they're they're often on the phone or on the email or, or whatever however they communicate. I'm well, liking to think there's a kind of guitar celebs WhatsApp group <laughs> that, where the word goes round that you've got something a bit tasty in. You know, and Geddy will find out because Joe's posted something on this WhatsApp group. I, I like that idea. It's pro- it's not true, but it's just in my head. It I quite like the idea of it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nice idea. Actually, it could be it could be correct as well. I, I don't know. I'm not privy to the group if if it exists. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, you, you could there could be something like that. That's for sure. 
Because there's obviously a Tory MPs group that today is going around saying they think the mini budget's a great idea. I just the idea of maybe a guitar group that does something probably far better. That's um, not gonna. That's not gonna last well. That quote. And no, it's not. No, no, no. no. Uh, there, there'll be somebody reviewing this in a year's time, going, "Didn't get that Tory that Tory WhatsApp quote." Well, they probably do a better job at running a country than this um, Tories MP group. <laughs> I. I Anybody could do. Your two cats could do a better job of running the, the country than, uh, assuming it was two that I saw, than, uh, than what we've currently got. So talk to us a little bit about the other things you've done then, because we, we got chatting a little bit before we started the call, and you've, you've got a, a background in, in uh, tech and recording and engineering. Uh, yeah, well, as I, I think, as I, as I said before, I went to uni and um, I... When I when I was at uni, um, I didn't really spend um, as much time as I should have studying my chosen subject. Instead, I, I was part of the ENTS committee and uh, met quite a few bands and uh, helped stage shows there at Leicester, this was. And uh, when I was there, I, I met um, Rick Nelson from Cheap Trick, who's a well-known collector. And uh, for a university gig, he he brought along seventy guitars. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he had three bursts there. He had about five blackguards. He had vintage strats. He had a Carina Flying V from '58, and they were all in like um, ten massive great flight cases, which had been shipped over from from the states. And uh, he he showed me his entire collection, and, and from from then on, I was I was completely hooked. Uh, so I, I owe a lot to him actually, and he was very, very kind. He took time to explain each one. None of his guitars I'd ever seen before in in Leicester or where I grew up in Barnstable. But yeah, I mean, after that, I did um, I did live sound for many years, touring with various bands, uh, mixing front of house, um, and then after that, I worked in uh, various studios for for quite a long time, quite a few years doing that. And then um, I did. Uh, I, I decided to um, co-found um, one of Europe's biggest pro audio, vintage pro audio companies, selling uh, vintage Neve, SSL, Neumann mics, valve mics, stuff like that. And we did that for a few years, and then uh, at the end of last century, I started doing what was always my first love, vintage guitars. Um, as a as a more prominent and full time um, profession, so I started up from there. And at that time, I was just selling on eBay. Um, I was sticking um, I was sticking uh, fifty seven straps on eBay for one one p and no reserve. And uh, <laughs> I, I and they went for a lot of money actually, just because you started off with a penny. You had hundreds of watches by the end of it, and people were just frantically bidding right at the last moments. And they went for more than you'd expect. It was a good ploy. Anyway, I did that for many, many years and uh, went through a lot of vintage guitars. Then when eBay put up their fees, I sort of formed um, my own company, ATB Guitars, and uh, we've been doing that for quite some time now. And we've got a nice little store in... Well, you've been there, Jason, in, in Cheltenham. It's... Um... It's everything that you would hope it would be. I came in. There's Mike's. De- Mike wasn't there, um, but you've got a big sort of old wooden desk that sits mm-hmm. at, at one end. Then you've got like a, a whole wall full of vintage guitars, and then there's a big collection that were on the floor as well. And I sit on this plush leather sofa, and David was on the other leather sofa. And there's a underneath all of the hanging guitars, there's like uh, rows of amps. And uh, I played, I think it was three Telecasters I played first, and they were plugged into a, an old Fender amp. And uh, honestly, uh, the, the one in particular, um, I don't know if you've sold it yet, the one that the 69 Tele that it got a terrible finish that someone had ripped stickers off it and just That's taken right, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you plugged it was pure Keith Richards. I mean, I, I've never heard a telly, I've never played a telly that sounds like that. It mm-hmm. just got that, it got that telly sort of twang, but it got a growl that you that you just don't get on a modern Fender. It was, it was just, and I, and, and I really wanted to buy it. And there was a, there was a 70 I played as well, which I liked, but not as much as the 69. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a, it was lovely. It was everything 
like I say, you would you want when you go to a place like that that um, you know you okay. go into a, a room that's set up for that really. Oh, you thank know. you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And uh, I think what was really nice as well uh, from a guitar show point of view and this podcast point of view because we've had Neil on. You know, you've got a selection of uh, Neil Iverson's guitars hanging up alongside the vintage guitars as well. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, you know, they do kind of echo, whilst the designs are, what would you say, they're like a homage. They're not, they're not, they're not copies. No, definitely not. They they have their own thing, particularly, Mm -hmm. uh, um, is it the Dakota that's a mix between a Les Paul and a Firebird? uh, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've got that vintagey vibe, I think, um, that you don't see very often. Yeah, uh, they and, sure and do. And it's kind of nice that you you kind of because Neil's not the only person that you have new stuff from it as well. You know, you you've got Flatley pedals, you've got Thorpe FX pedals, mm-hmm. um, you've got some other brands as well who's. I can't quite remember now, but I was looking at them earlier. Oh, so, Dan Drive, Hudson, Dan, we do them. Yeah, that's right, Dan Drive, Hudson, and it was kind of like you got some guitar straps as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, air straps, and we got some heist camp. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's kind of nice that you've got some new stuff there, but the new stuff definitely fits within the vibe of the old stuff as well. That's what we're aiming for. Yeah, everything hopefully complements each other, which is uh, what the idea is. Yeah, I, it was funny. I was I was playing some strats as well. I was playing. Um, you had a hardtail seventies um, strat. Can't remember what year it was. And uh, I said, "Oh, I'm quite interested in that stuff." And he went, "Really? No one's ever interested in hardtail." And I was like, "No, <laughs> no, I don't. I never use a trem at all ever. It's mm-hmm. just, just like a pain in the ass to set up, and I yeah. don't use it. So what's the point?" Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really nice, and then of course I I end up playing a '68 reefing, which is the only way that I can get into the vintage market by having something that's basically been butchered, but mm. still sounds like the best strat I've ever heard in my life. Though well, that's that's a good way of getting into it. Yeah, yeah. Get get a reefing. I mean, definitely you, you'll have uh, you'll have all the sound of a of an original for um, less than half the price usually. So mm. it's good good entry point. Good way of doing it. And uh, I mean, as, as I said on our most recent video, actually, the top 10 guitars which have increased in value over the last 10 years, strats are in this top 10. Um, and even reefens have gone up over 100% in the last 10 years. So um, they're still uh, good investments as well as great and fun guitars to play. If, if it's, got one of, it's one of the questions I've written down. If you were talking to someone now about investing in vintage guitars what i don't know what three guitars would you say you think because we're not going to hold you to this but you think (laughs) would go up in value Mm, interesting and it's a question i'm I'm asked uh quite a lot actually um it's gosh um I would say there's room for improvement and room for um, margin on things like the cheaper offset fenders, the Mustangs, the Music Masters, the Duosonics. Mm. I think they could uh, show some potential gains. Um, I think um, I think some of the early 70s Gibsons um, are too cheap at the moment, um, particularly things like the, um, the early 70s Les Paul Specials. Um, they're very good value at the moment, um, and I think they're underappreciated. Um, so that's two of them. What would be the third? I, um, probably, I would say, um, Firebirds, actually. I think they're undervalued right now <clears> as well. And I think there's potential for them to increase, given time as well. Yeah, so that would be my pick. Yeah, yeah. Give some fibers, um, especially the um, uh, the non-reverse ones. But they're very good value right now. Um, I mean, you can pick up a '65 Firebird for 
five grand, something like that, which which is crazy. Um, mm. Any other Gibson from that era would would cost uh, a lot, lot more, and uh, they present extremely good value for money, I think. What's what? I I know it's hard to quantify really because of the different years and everything. But what what's your number one sort of like selling? Is it Strat Tele? Yeah, I'd say at the moment it's Strats. Yeah, pre CBS Strats are blue chip guitars basically. And uh, I mean, I was just looking at it today. Um, a month ago, we had a a wall full of Strats, pre CBS Strats. We're pretty much down to like two or three now. It's crazy how well they sell. Um, but yeah, they're, they're probably our number one seller. I think we probably sell more pre CBS Strats, pre CBS Strats than um, anything else. Right now. I know when uh, when I was there, Daffy said, if you think that late 60s Strat is the best sounding Strat you've ever heard, don't pick up a 50s one. You can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> it will ruin you. And yeah. I was like, ah, okay, I'm not going to pick that up because quite frankly, <laughs> I don't want to be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of truth in that. Um, but uh, I mean, the one you've got is really nice. Uh, and it's a great way to get into that market. So, yeah, no, c- congratulations on it. Yeah, I'm sure I, Neil will do a brilliant job on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen it for three months or something. <laughs> no, you haven't, have you? No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm so, we're, uh, Neil took the, uh, the paint off because the paint job was awful on mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and so Neil um, sent me a photograph of the neck pocket having mm-hmm. uh, this week. And he said, well, it's Daphne blue now. Underneath that is white. Underneath that is Dakota red. Underneath that is a deeper kind of wine red. Don't know what it is. <laughs> and underneath that, the body's been stained yellow. So I suspect it may have been a sunburst, but I'll let you know when I've gone through sort of oh, like the wow. body. Oh, right. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, well... Well, at uh, that period, they were staining bodies, whatever the finish. So um, if it's got um, a stained yellow and the next layer of paint is a sort of darker red, it could well have been a candy apple red originally. Ooh. So Possibly. I, I said to Neil, uh, as if possible, I'd like to put it back to what its original colour was. Mm. Um, so we, we need to do more investigation. But I don't mind having a Dakota red one, if that's what we end up with yeah it, oh, it could well have been dakota as well yeah that's right yeah that would have been that's quite nice actually it's a nice color mm. and uh and if we can't decide i'll probably just go for white because that yeah. seems to be like like everybody likes a white strap right indeed they do yeah did um did he find any um any anomalies underneath any routes or anything like that uh, yeah i mean i knew that um at the time it's, it's been rated for a humbucker yeah. At, at mm-hmm. the oh, yeah. Did you find anything else? So? No. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I won't put a humbucker in it. Good. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it with. Uh, I think it was a. From what I remember, it was an original bridge pickup, but it had been rewound by Monty's, uh, mm-hmm. and the middle and the neck were all original. So. Yeah. Uh, given that Matt does a, a cracking job, um, I'll just leave it as is, sort of thing. Now, they must be around the corner from you, are they? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're literally around the corner, yeah. They're about, um, I mean, five minutes, well, less than five minutes by car, 15-minute walk. Oh, wow. Who'd have thought Cheltenham? Mm-hmm. Rock and roll yeah. capital of Britain. <laughs> I'm still getting over having a vintage guitar and popping it on eBay with no reserve at a penny. <laughs> I haven't got past that. So the last, the last 15 minutes of conversation, I've kept... Co- only because when I ever used ebay i always did the same thing i never did and i always started off at pretty much zero i never did reserve but when mm. you're selling something that you want to get 50 quid for and i used to panic a bit at that <laughs> so i have to i have to say i'm mightily impressed with what it must take to do that well this this was a uh, different times i'm not sure whether that would be a good strategy now no, probably not now no no but when when i was doing it 20 years ago it certainly worked for me <laughs> and uh, I gained a lot of following because of that as well. I was known as a guy for 1p, no reserve. And literally everything I had through, whatever the value it was, went for 1p and no reserve. And I don't think I made a loss ever 
I may have lost on two or three items, which were probably cheaper items, but I mean, the big ticket items, uh, sort of 10 grand plus 20 grand guitars, they always went for more than they actually, I expected them to go for. I I don't know if there's a better place to finish, Jay, than that. The oh. being known as the one Pino Reserve guy. <laughs> that that that's a legacy, isn't it? That's a that's a headstone. Without wanting to obviously wish you you know wish you unwell, that's a headstone. Yes, well, well, mind you, that was that was the situation. Uh, it's certainly not now, unfortunately. I don't do that anymore. But uh, yeah, but twenty years ago, I was known as the one Pino Reserve man. That never leaves you. That no, just I guess never not. ever no. leaves you. No. Wouldn't it be nice if we could do that now, but um, unfortunately, times are different. Yes, very. Well, Mike, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Pleasure, Rand. Thanks very much for having me on. What a fascinating conversation. So, yes, love to see you, Mike. And, uh, well, I guess we'll see you at the next show. I'll probably see you at the next show. Though, yeah, I, though I'm desperate to come to Cheltenham now. Yeah, I you mean, must, yes. must yeah. and say hello. Yeah, I definitely will do that now, though I am a little bit concerned because, you know, actually, Jason's probably easier to get money out of than me. So, um, yeah, but that doesn't doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Oh, we're good at extracting money from yeah, all Yes, so. that's what worries me. Be warned. Um, we ought to uh, say a big thanks to our friends at Focusrite before yes. we go. Thank you, Focusrite, for sponsoring the podcast. Love you. Uh, lovely people that they are. Lovely people that they've just released a new product. You know, that's that's made out of recycled material. Oh, fantastic for the planet. They're doing great things as far as sustaining the planet. So we must tip our, tip our hat to them. All right. Consider it tipped. Uh, consider it tipped. Right. I will see you next time. Mike, I'll see you as and when. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. Bye. And... Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9to42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at The Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production.